seated. Good morning, everyone. Reverend Sarah and Pat are at a wedding this weekend, and I have the privilege of being among you again this morning. I want you to come back with me to ancient Judea, approximately 30 A.D., by the way we measure time. It's the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and for the Jews of occupied Palestine, there have been more than six centuries of oppression. Just pause there for a moment more than two and a half times as long as America has existed as a nation. They've known nothing but oppression. One world empire after another, the Babylonians, then the Medes and Persians, then the Assyrians, and now the Romans. And by this point in history, approximately 90% of all the citizens are in fact slaves, all of the Jews were considered slaves, technically. And all this time, they've been living in the light of a promise from God that one day he would send a deliverer, a liberator, a Messiah. And yet for more than 400 years, they've not had so much as a word from this God. The people of Israel prided themselves. Their their raison d'etre as a people was that they knew the living God. And he spoke to them. And for four centuries, there's been no prophecy. The years between Malachi and Matthew, the so-called silent years. And suddenly, a wild figure appears on the banks of the Jordan and begins calling people to be washed in its muddy waters as a sign of repentance. We call him John the Baptist or the baptizer, and most people think he invented it. He invented baptism. Not at all the case. Baptism was widely practiced in the ancient world, not always called that, but If you wanted to leave your people, your family, your tribe, your nation, and join yourself to some other for marriage or a military alliance or whatever, it was typical that you would undergo a washing, a ritual washing away of your past. That's over and done. Something new is beginning. And for at least 200 years prior to John, the Jews practiced baptism. Bet you didn't know that. Most Jews don't know that today. But they practice baptism for those dirty Gentiles who want to become Jews. You understand. Well, we Jews don't need to be baptized. I mean, we, we're already members of the covenant. We have Abraham as our father, okay? What's new about John is not that he invented baptism, but that he said, you Jews need to be baptized just as much as any dirty Gentile. Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Do you get the impact of that in the light of what they had been doing for two centuries? Do not say that. I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham out of these stones if he wants to. You need to be baptized. And what a fiery message. 
you brood of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath that is to come? God is angry with you. Bear fruits that bear, bear fruit of repentance. I tell you, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, I was always glad that we got to John after stewardship time, you know. <clears throat> but something about this man couldn't be ignored. We know that he had companies of disciples as far north as Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, as far south as Alexandria, Egypt. He was, the, he was the Billy Graham of his day. And by the way, if you haven't heard, Billy is very near death and his family asks your prayers. I want to bring together a couple of bits and pieces from the other Gospels. From John's Gospel, we learn that the religious authorities back in Jerusalem said to themselves, we better check this guy out. I mean, he is not only railing against the Jews, uh, I mean, against the, the, the Romans, but he's railing against the Jews. He's railing against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's against our rulers. He's calling everybody to repentance. We better check this guy out. So they sent a little delegation to interview him. They came with a whole list of questions. It wasn't exactly meet the press. It was sort of face the Pharisees. And who are you? Who do you think you are? And John said, I know exactly what you're thinking, but I am not the Messiah. I'm not the deliverer. I'm not the liberator. Well, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? They asked. Wait a minute. Why would they ask him if he's Elijah? Elijah lived about 850 years before John. Why would they ask him if he's Elijah? Two reasons. Number one, Elijah is one of only two men in all the scripture <clears throat> who it says never died. The other was Enoch. We know almost nothing about Enoch. <clears throat> we meet Enoch in Genesis 5. It says Enoch walked with God and was no more. He just walked out of this world into the next. <clears throat> and Elijah, it says, was carried up into heaven in a chariot of fire. And by the way, the movie in 1981 is an allusion to that, chariots of fire about the, the uh, great racers in the Olympics. <clears throat> the other reason is that there was a promise that before Messiah comes, Elijah is going to come to prepare the way. So are you Elijah? If you're not Messiah, are you Elijah? John says, no, I'm not. Now, there's a confusion about that because in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. It's not actually a contradiction. That's saying that John comes as an Elijah figure. And as you remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Elijah himself comes back with Moses to talk with Jesus. But John comes as an Elijah, a way preparer. 
Elijah's role in his day was to call the people back to the one true God, back to the God of Israel, away from the worship of Baal. And Elijah's very name means the Lord is God. El, E-L, is God, and Jah, or Yah, is the first syllable of Yahweh, or Jehovah. Jehovah is the Lord, the Lord is God. That's what his name means. John comes to do exactly the same thing, to prepare people to meet the one true God who is coming among us in human form. Are you the prophet? These are their questions. If you're not Messiah and you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? Who's the prophet? Well, just before Moses died, he said, after me will come a prophet like I am. Actually, he's going to be greater than I am. Pay attention to him. So there was that expectation as well. Are you the prophet who was promised? No, I'm not the prophet. Okay, you're not the Messiah, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet. Who are you? And he says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's an allusion to Isaiah 40. And we've probably punctuated that wrongly. It's not the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. It's the voice of one crying, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You catch the difference there? Have you noticed how when the President of the United States plans to visit some small town occasionally, you notice what happens? I mean, every building gets painted, every broken window gets repaired, the white stripe down the middle of the street gets repainted. Everything gets trimmed up, readied, prettied up. John is saying, right into the wilderness, that kind of preparation needs to take place. Where the tangled vines of sin are so thick that nobody else can hack through them. Right into the desert where our spirituality has become so barren that anybody else would perish right through the mountains of our pride that are so high that nobody else can scale them, leaping across the valleys of our despair that are so deep nobody else would even try to ford them. Make a path for Messiah. In other words, get ready. Get ready. Straighten out your life. If there's anything kinky, twisted, wrong, compromised, get rid of it. Because you're about to meet the Holy One of Israel. We're about to celebrate Christmas again. The coming of this Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just his birthday. We're celebrating his coming. Do you want to meet him? Do you want to draw close to him? John's message is, get yourself ready. He's the Holy One. And then there's one more strange piece that may have a hidden meaning. John says, 
I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. Or the other Gospels say, I'm not, willing to un- I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. Remember that? That may be just an extravagant way of saying, I, 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 I wouldn't even step on his shadow. I'm not worthy to be in the same room with him. That may just be a very extravagant way of speaking, but it may be an illusion, allusion to a very strange little piece of scripture. Back in Deuteronomy 25, this is called the Law of Leverite Marriage. When brothers reside together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, taking her in marriage and performing the duty of a husband's brother to her. Very strange as far as we're concerned, but in ancient Israel where your your posterity after you is the most important thing that could happen, This was a way of preserving the family name. But listen, there's a footnote. If a man will not perform the duty of a husband's brother, then the elders of the town shall summon him and speak to him. If he persists, saying, I have no desire to marry her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his foot, spit in his face, And declare, this is what is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. Throughout all Israel, his family shall be known as the house of him whose sandal was pulled off. And you know the story of Ruth? Ruth the Moabitess, who is widowed. and her daughter, uh, Naomi, is the, is the mother-in-law, and Ruth is, is her daughter-in-law. And they're both widowed, and Naomi says, I'm going back home, uh, back to Israel. Uh, and, and Ruth the Moabitess says, I'm going with you. And, and we've lifted that out of there, and we've turned it into a song that people sing at weddings, Whither thou goest, I will go. And whether, you know, it's between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. But if you read the little book of Ruth, there's a fascinating story about a man named Boaz who was a kinsman of Ruth and he has the right to do what the law of Leverite marriage says, namely marry his kinsman's widow. Uh, But there's a problem. There's a nearer kinsman. Somebody nearer than Boaz has the right of first refusal. Only he says, I don't want to do it. And so he takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz. And Boaz ends up marrying Ruth. And it's through that line, by the way, that Messiah eventually comes, which is fascinating. In this little dialogue with John the Baptist... He goes on to say, I am not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, the one who's coming after me, the Messiah, the liberator, the promised one, 
He is the bridegroom, and I'm his friend. But unlike the nearer kinsman in the story of Ruth, this bridegroom is not going to refuse to pay the bride price. This bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is going to pay the price, and I'm not worthy to take off his sandal. I'm not worthy to untie it because he comes to fulfill every promise and to make God known to you. That's just part of the background. Are you ready to meet this Lord Jesus in a deeper way? Heed the message of John. Get ready to draw near to him because he wants to draw near to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.